In mid-1918, sailors in the United States Navy began presenting with an unknown illness. Symptoms ranged from headaches to profound depression, delirium, blood gushed from orifices. It was described like people recently described Ebola. Body aches racked victims accompanied by coughing violent enough to tear apart their chest muscles. Some vomited uncontrollably. Many showed signs of oxygen uh, starvation. Uh, blue tinge around their lips and in the extremities. In a few, the cyanosis was so severe as to make them appear black. These men were judged to be beyond help and were set aside to die, allowing for care providers to focus on those more likely to survive. This is where the term Black November for Jeffrey Rice's book comes from. Medical researchers, I don't expect you to be able to read this, by the way, but this is the list of complications were noted from the flu, everything from nosebleeds to infections of the heart. Um, medical researchers and military physicians desperately poured through their lists of possible diagnoses. Could be any of it, a list of pathogens, but the syndrome didn't match any of them. While some researchers continued to insist that the new outbreak stemmed from a previously unknown infection, the majority began to realize that it was something much more banal. This was influenza. There had already been a first wave of influenza which struck in the Northern Hemisphere summer of 1918, making many ill but killing few, although it did impact the course of the First World War. What was quickly understood was that the second wave heralded a form of influenza that had never been previously recorded. Although many deaths were in the classic influenza progression of secondary pneumonias following an illness of a week or more, the age ranges and death ranges for the new variant were remarkably different. Sweeping a globe that was already racked by the fourth year of the First World War, civil unrest in Russia and China and famine in India, the influenza struck when diseases do, when the victim is weakened. The effect was shattering. The second wave of the 1918 influenza pandemic arrived in New Zealand with the southern summer, with Auckland showing significant cases by the end of October. On October 30th, the Union Steamship Company's Talune, Actually, a bit of debate now on how to pronounce that, but I'm, I've always pronounced it Tulune, so I'm going to keep it up. Uh, left and infected Auckland for its passenger and cargo run through western Polynesia. The flu was incubating on this vessel, and by the time the Tulune reached its first stop in Suva on November 4th, crew members were ill. Now, here's the Tulune's traditional run. Uh, stopping first in Suva to pick up cargo handlers. She would also visit Levuka in Fiji, Apia in Western Samoa, at times Pongo Pongo in American Samoa, down through Tonga to Nuka Lofa, and then back to Fiji to drop off the workers and head back to New Zealand. Each of the states visited on her run had a very different political <coughs> system, from a hereditary monarchy under British protection in Tonga to an America Samoan rule but directly by the U.S. Navy. They varied widely in population size and makeup, infrastructure development, and integration into the larger world. Their outcomes from this fluid vary widely as well, from the highest mortality rate on the globe to one of the few locations to escape it altogether. The first stop, Fiji, towered above her neighbors. The population of 140,000 was the largest in the region. It was the most diverse ethnically, with more than 30% of the population coming from outside the Pacific. It's the largest physically, with 18,000 square kilometers divided between 110 inhabited islands. It also hosted the British um, Western Pacific High Commission, which made it the center of power in the region. So it was more exposed to contagions because it had more ship traffic coming through it, but it also had the best medical infrastructure in the region. 
Given this concentration of resources and the communications that went with it, some planning for the approaching pandemic, which had already struck in Great Britain and South Africa, would have been anticipated. Yet despite these advantages, little preparation was attempted. See, October 1918 found Fiji in transition. The governor of six years had just left. The war seemed to be coming to a close. But over the past four years, it had drained off most of the best administrators and medical staff away to the European theater. The Fiji Times throughout October was full of stories about victories in the West, as well as change of governance occurring in Fiji. But over the course of October, you start seeing more and more stories about the flu around the world appearing. Its approach was starting to become a concern. Now, flu had certainly hit Fiji before the 1918 pandemic. An outbreak described as malignant and obstinate swept the islands as early as 1839. In 1885, flu with dengue and dysentery caused 1,000 deaths. And as recently as 43 years before, in 1875, measles killed off a third of the population of Fiji. From past experience and the increasingly shrill warnings in the press, the government and the military and medical establishment was far from ignorant of the potential for infection when the Tulune arrived. So why no quarantine? The medical establishment on the ground refused to believe that influenza could be as deadly as the reports were telling them. No preparatory work took place, no activation of quarantine. Flu remained a non-reportable disease, and the local Board of Health saw no reason to interrupt the local <coughs> efforts towards supporting the war due to rumors and newspaper reports. Now, in the post-mortem analysis after the pandemic swept Fiji, the senior medical officer described the view of the medical authorities this way. The alternatives presented to us here were, one, a recognition that prevention of its introduction was not practicably possible. Two, a more or less rigid quarantine, which would almost certainly fail to prevent its admission, but would delay it, would put great difficulties in the way of trade and communication, but would absolve the health authorities from most of the possibilities of criticism. Or three, an efficient quarantine. This quarantine would have to be against ships from Vancouver, Sydney, and probably Auckland. Thus, in defense after the fact, the officer in charge of the health of Fiji argued that the options available included choosing to accept the inevitable, put up enough of a quarantine to appear to be doing something which would interrupt daily life but protect his and his staff's reputation, or institute a complete quarantine. The fact that no explanation is given as to why the last option is not chosen suggests that he saw this as such an absurd thought. He saw no reason why he had to explain why he didn't do so. Either the officer was seeking to explain his refusal to recognize the series of the threat in as positive a manner as possible, or we take him at his word and accept that he did indeed see what was coming and simply saw no benefit to putting in place quarantine. Why? Well, quarantine would have disrupted trade and travel, engendering opposition that a new administration was loath to face. Still, the calls for quarantine against incoming ships increased as October wore on. Yet the response of the new governor and his CMO reflected fatalism. If the flu had already reached Germany and the US, how was Fiji going to keep it out? A final warning passed unheeded when the ship Niagara out of Vancouver docked on the 9th of October. Some of you may know the Niagara. Many people blame it for infecting New Zealand. Jeffrey Rice disagrees. That's not something I'll get into here, although I agree with uh, Dr. Rice's point of view. Um, this ship had reported 87 cases of probable influenza on board. A quarantine was imposed, but two passengers were allowed to land anyway. 
Fortunately, no infection developed. But rather than reflecting on this close call, this experience reinforced the local medical officer's view that there was nothing to be feared from the influenza was aboard these ships. The Niagara famously then went on to Auckland and to be blamed for the outbreak in New Zealand. So on the 4th of November, when the Tulune arrived in Fiji, it was sailing out of an Auckland that the authorities in Fiji already knew was infected. Five cases were declared to the master of the ship on arrival. After inspection, the port's medical officers judged these cases to be an ordinary type and mild. Passengers thus disembarked with instructions to present daily to the port medical officer for inspections. This ensured, although unintentionally, that these people had to move back and forth through town all day while being potentially infected. Less than 24 hours, the first disembarked passenger developed influenza of a severe and epidemic variety. Within the week, cases were appearing daily. Quick side note, at this time, the majority of physicians did not think influenza was infectious. They had no disease, they, excuse me, they had no theory of viral presence or viral infection. So most physicians at this point believed it was an environmental disease, something that was miasmatic, coming from a gas that was released either from the ground or decomposing matter. So frequently, even though they knew influenza was aboard, they didn't think it was infectious. They didn't think people could give it to each other. So it was not considered an infectious disease on these vessels and no quarantine was put in place. This is why leaving Auckland, they got a clean bill of health from Auckland, because from Auckland, they didn't have an infectious disease at the port. They had influenza, which was non-infectious. So the Tulune took on laborers in Suva for a 10-day swing through Western Polynesia. On the 4th of November, she left for Levuka before sailing for Samoa. Now, residents of Suva remembered previous pandemics. Remember, as I said, a third of the population had died 43 years before. And even as the medical authorities said, no worries, everything's fine, they fled for their villages. As the disease increased throughout the first half of November, an exodus began, and they brought the infection with them. This process continued without official comment. In fact, seven days after the arrival of the Tulune, and just as the flu was beginning to present new cases daily, the government sanctioned events which drew individuals from everywhere in Fiji to Suva. At roughly 9 p.m. on November 11, 1918, news reached Suva that the World War had ended, or was going to end that day. By Sunday the 12th, the hotels overflowed. Thanksgiving celebrations proceeded in the churches that seemingly everybody in Suva was hosting something at their home. Nine days into the presentation of a massively infectious pandemic, Suva held the largest party in Fijian history. And it didn't just occur in Fiji. This occurred all over the world. This gave new impetus to the outbreak in the States as well as in New Zealand. Armistice events acted as a new wave generator for this flu. The events of November 11th through 14th functioned as an incredibly effective dispersal system for this virus. So the Tulune eventually returned to Fiji on November the 14th and disembarked 90 infected workers to further feed the pandemic. They had to hire more staff from Suva to help unload the cargo on board, as the original 90 that they had hired 10 days earlier were all too ill to assist. These workers that came onto the ship were infected in turn. <coughs> so by the end of the celebrations, the authorities in Suva acknowledged the spread of the disease. Influenza was declared reportable, which meant that it was infectious on November the 16th. 
By this declaration, the government adopted broad powers for itself and its representatives to control the disease. But another three days passed before schools, theaters, and other public sites began to close. By the 19th, by which time there are already 500 confirmed cases in Suva, handbills in Fijian, Hindustani, and English describing symptoms and treatment of influenza were dispersed. On the 21st of November, 17 days into the pandemic, the government opened a quarantine center. Despite these actions, the death count from influenza in Fiji reached 100 by the end of November with an estimated 3,000 infections. Now Suva, like everywhere else in the Pacific, once it was infected, the infection rate approached 90% amongst adults by the third week of the pandemic. The medical infrastructure in Fiji, despite being relatively advanced for the region, showed little effect. While efforts to proceeded to staff the colonial hospital, including the use of local medical students from the Fiji School of Medicine, the skilled practitioners fell sick as soon as they were brought into these facilities because they were frontline handling infected people. On November 28th, the Fiji Times could report that all but one nurse at the colonial hospital were unable to work because they were too sick. A call for volunteers went out. At the end of the day, most of the volunteers that stayed and worked were expatriates, because like so many other places in the world, the indigenous population was struck much more viciously by this disease than by colonialist European or East Asian or North American populations. The disposal of the dead became a concern. Jails and the local leprosarium served as recruiting depots for grave diggers, but reports suggest that they refused to work when one of those ready for internment woke shrugged off their shroud, and staggered away. Authorities quickly turned to mass graves when individual burials could no longer meet demands. And while Suva kept the headlines, less than a fortnight, influenza appeared in other communities. By the 30th of November, influenza was present on every major island and in every town. On December 1st and 2nd, Rewa described that the thing exploded and laid low the whole countryside. There was no one to be seen on the roads and no one in the fields. Navoa reported the disease spread with such rapidity that the first week of December there were thousands of cases and the whole life of the district was paralyzed and disorganized. And the timeline varied by locale, but the basics of the pandemic matched what others reported around the globe. He had a seven to 10 day period of increasing cases after initial exposure and then a huge spike of ill individuals overwhelming the local medical infrastructure. The organization of the communities quickly collapsed as the outbreaks developed more severely in urban areas, but the urban areas had the advantages of having the resources concentrated there to help deal with the outbreaks. If you were in the villages or the remote plantations and you were dangerously ill, you struggled against much greater obstacles to accessing care and frequently waited until the city outbreaks had been resolved. However, interesting studies have shown that in cities such as Boston, you had a greater chance of survival if you were stuck outside the hospital in November winter weather in a bed than actually being brought inside the hospital. Because one of the things that killed you with the flu was other people's respiratory infections. It was when you were stuck in a room with everyone else's respiratory infections that you acquired a suite of them after being weakened by the influenza virus and you passed away. Since we didn't understand what viruses were or how they worked at the time, we didn't recognize this. 
Um, people in the remote areas had the advantage of local food sources. Starvation was present, and the situation was exacerbated because there was a shipping strike in Australia at this exact time, and the flu had wiped out uh, the, the ports in Auckland, Christchurch, and other areas in New Zealand. So no emergency shipments of food were made. So in most areas, the pandemic lasted five to seven weeks. By the end of the outbreak, um, the, when the disease had run its course in Fiji, the death rate was somewhere between 5 and 7% of the population. And that occurred in 8 to 10 weeks. So the Fiji Times, after the end of the outbreak, waxed damning. The Times called for the appointment of a commission of inquiry with the power to investigate all aspects of the pandemic, especially the failure of quarantine and the lack of preparation despite all the warnings coming through. No commission was ever appointed. On November 7th, the Tulune, leaving Fiji, reached Apia, the main port of New Zealand-occupied Western Samoa. Passengers were discharged and embarked freely, and the crew worked with Samoan handlers without precautions, despite multiple reports of when the ship came into harbor of voices yelling from the ship itself in Samoan, there is disease on this vessel, there is an illness on this vessel. In 1918, Samoa, as today, was split. Uh, two polities occupied this space, American Samoa in the east, Western Samoa, the two islands in the west. Culturally, physically, and in terms of traditions regarding health, there was little to distinguish between the residents. <clears throat> they had been culturally unified, if politically fractious, up till the partition of 1899, when the colonial powers brought in the King of Sweden, of all people, to determine who was going to rule the various parts of Samoa, without asking the local population. Uh, yet the 1918 influenza killed a quarter of the population in Western Samoa and left Eastern Samoa basically untouched. Why were their experiences so different? The Western Samoa visited by the Tulune was the larger portion of the Samoan Islands. Violent competition between the German, American, and British interests led to the split of 1899, which I already mentioned. This created a German-governed Western Samoa, comprising the islands of Savai'i or Polu, along with most of the population, and an American-governed American or Eastern Samoa, encompassing the island of Tutuila, as well as the Manawa group. So from the start, these two colonies were very different in intent. This is what the Americans wanted. They wanted Pongo Pongo Harbor. This is one of the best harbors in the Pacific. The Americans were spreading their navy across the Pacific in the wake of the Spanish-American War. They wanted this as a coaling stop. Western Samoa, on the other hand, was seen by the German government as a traditional colony. They were trying to get into the colonial race. They wanted a place where they could put German citizens on the ground and have an economic benefit from it. So efforts were made to increase its economic viability and attract some settlers. However, following the start of the First World War, Britain asked New Zealand to occupy Western Samoa to prevent its use by German naval forces. The leader of this expedition, Colonel Robert Logan, I believe is right down there, stayed behind as military governor of the colony. So by this point, 1918, the two pieces of Samoa had been divided for less than 20 years. The colonies shared diet, language, traditions. The people were in regular contact. Both controlled all access through single ports, Apia and Pongo Pongo. Both were governed by a foreign, English-speaking, military garrison. The mechanics of quarantine were well known in both locations, by military staff serving as administrators and by the Samoan elites. 
exclusion of many diseases, including plague, had been implemented since the imposition of colonial governance 19 years before. The dangers of ships and the diseases they brought were really well known. This was not a mystery. This was not something they hadn't dealt with in the past. So with this in mind, how do you explain the differing responses in the two colonies to the approach of the Talune? When the Talune docked in Western Samoa, she was not put in quarantine. Despite the spread of the disease globally, no influenza control procedure, uh, measures were in place. The Governor General of South Africa had specifically telegraphed Auckland on October the 12th to warn them of what was happening in South Africa, what had already happened in London. By October 19th, the press in New Zealand was discussing the fact that more US citizens had already died from the flu than on the battlefields of France. Yet no warning was passed to the Pacific colonies, either from Britain or from New Zealand. On November the 6th, so that's one day before the ship arrives in Apia, the government of New Zealand gazetted influenza as an infectious disease. This meant that it was subject to all public health laws and to quarantine. That would have prevented a clean bill of health on the departure out of Auckland if it had been done earlier, and it could have stimulated a quarantine at Apia, except that it was never transmitted to the telegraph station in Apia. Matter of fact, the next year, in mid-1919, when testifying to the Samoan Epidemic Commission, the then administrator of Western Samoa stated that it still hadn't been communicated to Apia officially, that this disease was infectious and was subject to the public health laws. So no notice was sent, no warning was given. To be fair, New Zealand was operating a skeleton garrison in Samoa and in Wellington. Uh, the, the, the burden of the war was such on a country the size of New Zealand that they were stretched to their limit already. However, no warning was sent, no notice was given. The ship's captain said nothing of illness in New Zealand. In fact, the captain told ill crew and passengers to hide their malady so that they wouldn't be detected in Apia. Now, they knew or they thought they were going to be quarantined in Apia. The passage from Suva or Levuka to Apia was twice as expensive as normal. And when the company was asked why, they said, this is to pay for your time in quarantine in Apia. They very much expected to be quarantined. They weren't. The ship was granted pratique, that is, access to the port, and unloading began. Certainly, the ship wasn't going to speak up and say, we're carrying disease. Please stop us. Would have been the ethical thing to do, but that was not Captain Mawson's way of doing things. In contrast, American Samoa had a general quarantine in place. Despite no instruction from the US Navy, Governor John Poyer chose to act following the flu, after following the flu in radio bulletins. Sorry. With the approach of the Talune, the governor <coughs> warned that any ships entering Pongo Pongo Harbor would be held in quarantine for five days, and then went to the three, premier, the three paramount chiefs of American Samoa and discussed the situation with them. And it was determined between the four that a quarantine was feasible with the support of the local Samoan population. So the Talune either declined to enter or was not planning to enter on that trip. I have seen it written both ways. Thus, when the pandemic reached Samoa, Apia's doors were open while Pongo Pongos were shut tight. This disparity wasn't driven by differing cultural imperatives or a different experience of infectious disease. The variants stemmed from economic pressures within the, the colony, the structure of the administrations, and the natures of the governors. 
Now, I'm not a big fan of the big man or big woman theory of history, but in this case, the nature of Governor Poyer and Governor Logan has a direct bearing on the outcome. The economics of the two Samoas reflect the differing purpose of the colonies. As I mentioned, to Washington, American Samoa was a naval station that happened to have an indigenous population. Little of the land was arable, and copra was the only export. There was no need for traders to be there permanently, and the their colony made absolutely no effort to attract settlers. So this facilitated Governor Poyer's use of quarantine in two ways. The absence of a strong trader community allowed him to act without any local resistance, and the small number of ships which visited Pongo Pongo made the effort manageable. This Western Samoa, under German rule, was a commercial enterprise. 19% of the land was controlled, the best 19%, by large European owned plantations. The plantations produced non-food products for the most part using imported labor. To support this trade, a network of European planters and shipping agents developed throughout the colony. When the issue of quarantine arose for Western Samoa, Gover Governor Logan faced the hostility of a vocal trading community, which had lost all their German financing because of the war. Logan would have had to create a larger infrastructure to, sh to cope with the larger number of ships that may have been quarantined, and he would have had more difficulty enforcing such an edict, in major part because the Germans had actively fought against the traditional aristocracy in Samoa and had stripped them of their powers or had put their own people into the roles, making these people less acceptable as a whole and less able to mobilize a population for efforts as they were in American Samoa. But this disinclination to act also had an institutional element. Western Samoa had been taken by New Zealand only four years before, and Logan received no guidance regarding how to run the territory aside from denying it to the Germans. This man was a cavalry officer in the Boer War and by all uh, descriptions a generally kind person and a, a sheep farmer from the Otago region, had no experience running a colony and probably no business running a colony. So facing a lack of experience, a dearth of instructions, weakened institutions, and an unhelpful infrastructure, Logan perceived little support or guidance in the crisis. He chose to wait for directives rather than acting on his own initiative, and the port remained open. Governor Poyer faced very different circumstances in American Samoa. Over 19 years of, of uh, what's the term? Over 19 years, he had learned to act autonomously because the U.S. Navy, aside from the port, wasn't interested in his colony. The medical staff were naval officers. They were better trained than the average doctor that was present in the Pacific during this time, and they understood quarantine and diseases. So without oversight from Washington or pressure groups from traders in the colony, he was able, the bureaucracy there left most of the matters of the colony to the local nobility. So when descriptions of the flu reached Governor Poyer, excuse me, it was the four paramount chiefs. I was wrong earlier, not the three. Quarantine was established in consultation with the residents of the territory and implemented by the local Samoans. It would have been impossible for the U.S. Navy to do this. There was just a vestigial force there. It was the Samoans themselves that put in place the quarantine that kept American Samoa safe. These nobles, unlike their Western Samoan equivalents, maintained their status and authority which came with it and the quarantine they put in place remained in place till 1921 with no fatalities from the flu, making this the only place in the world where that, there were no fatalities that we recorded from the flu, with the exception of some extremely small islands in the Atlantic. 
Following a five-day period in quarantine, those residents who were trapped outside the colony were allowed to return home. Many of them were fleeing this. Western Samoa suffered the highest known mortality of any polity in the 1918 to 1921 pandemic. At least 24% of the population died in the space of eight weeks. Keep in mind, this is not the entire population. This is between 18 and 45, 18 and 50 years old. In that age group, up to or perhaps more than half of that population died in those two months. As the viral strain struck hardest of young adults, forgive, I'm beyond that age range myself, but these were the people that were most active in society and were most relied upon in society. As far in groups such as um, traditional administrators, teachers, church bureaucracies, in places the death rate was 70% of those people. The most productive residents of Western Samoa died in droves. More starved as none could work to provide sustenance to the ill and as traditional gardens had been seized for plantations by the German occupiers and the, in turn gardens further away had been given to the villages. So people were found on the roads dead trying to reach the gardens that were four, five, six kilometers away and bring food back home. All ac economic activity on the island stopped. The elites were decimated. Western Samoa collapsed for a time. When the worst was over, it became clear that American Samoa, 50 kilometers away, 70 kilometers away, had avoided this catastrophe, which engulfed the West. Recriminations rose against Logan and the New Zealand administration. Petitions were put forward to remove Logan from office and to move Western Samoa under British and American control. Logan, who had fallen very ill himself during the outbreak, left the territory in early 1919. His successor, Robert Tate, cl claimed that he was working to rebuild as much goodwill as possible, but this is a difficult task in a population which has just lost at least a quarter of its members. He met with local chiefs who laid a list of complaints before him, including the poor behavior of Governor Logan during the crisis, the admission of the Tulune without quarantine, the refusal of an offer of help from American Samoa, and the lack of care for the orphans of the pandemic. Governor Tate's response, which was to criticize the chiefs for their own lack of action during the pandemic and to blame them for half the deaths, did little to bring together the two sides. Uh, Non-Samoan residents shared the low regard for the administration's effort. A senior missionary in Samoa with 30 years local experience stated to the Samoan uh, uh, Influenza Commission, the whole thing seems to have been a huge blunder from beginning to end, a bungle which amounts to a crime. The same commission's finding faulted New Zealand for not noting that influenza was rife on the Talune's Bill of Health, not notifying Apia when influenza became a reportable disease, the Apia health officer for granting pratique despite visibly ill people on board, the captain of the Talune for not revealing the illness on board, and Colonel Logan for a range of actions taken and not taken. By 1921, unrest in Samoa grew, an uprising. The Mao simmered throughout the 20s and 30s. In 1929, the Mao presented a petition to the British monarch, George V, in which the ravages of the 1918 influenza were the first point of complaint. The same year saw the most dramatic moment in the Mao, when on 29 December, New Zealand police fired on a demonstration in Apia. Twelve died, one a New Zealand police officer and the other Samoan protesters. 
The most notable casualty was the High Chief of Samoa, Tapua Tamasese, shot while he attempted to calm the demonstration and avoid bloodshed. His death led to further agitation, followed by a military crackdown. But after the experience in 1918, Western Samoa never fully accepted foreign rule. The ravages of the influenza became memorialized as an example of the uncaring colonial state. The experience of the pandemic helped maintain the Mao, which, although briefly bloody, settled into a constant push for an independent state, one granted by New Zealand or acknowledged by New Zealand in 1962. An apology for the events of 1918 and the response to the Mao which followed was offered by then New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark in 2002. However, residents of American Samoa, being quite aware of the devastation to their neighbors, gave effusive thanks to the local administrators. Commendations came from as near as the local chiefs, who in my opinion did all the work, and as far as the British Foreign Office. In the 90 years since the pandemic, the wave of decolonization has seemed to pass by Pongo Pongo. So in this way, medical outcomes shaped political development. The varied impact of a disease has helped to create both an independent Samoan state and the ongoing extension of the United States into the heart of Polynesia. Leaving Apia, the Tulune then moved on, reaching Tonga on November the 10th. Now, uh, in 1918, Tonga was ruled, as today, by a hereditary monarchy. In October of that year, the young Queen Salate was attempting to cement her rule in the face of noble opposition. While nominally independent, Tonga had accepted a British protectorate and control of foreign and budget policy in order, via a resident consul to avoid being swallowed up in any of the colonial empires of the area. The Americans, Germans, and Brits were competing every bit as much over Tonga as they were over Samoa. Tonga had never developed into the trade hub that Fiji and Western Samoa did, but her proximity to the whaling grounds and her reputation as the Friendly Isles had exposed her population to the ravages of disease carried by ships throughout the 1800s. Quarantine measures were first drafted by, uh, for Tonga in 1875, but as there was not a physician on the islands until 1886, they were not enforced before that point. The first hospital in Tonga only opened in 1907. Now, records from Tonga are much more sparse than the previous locations we've discussed due to the lack of any local newspaper or colonial infrastructure at the time and they had no wireless communications, so they didn't know that this was coming. The newspapers that would have told them about the flu were in the hold of the ship that brought the flu. So we do know that the Tulunes wrote in Tonga was Vavau, Hapai, and finally Nuka Lofa in Tonga Tapu on November the 12th. By the time she reached Nukalofa, the ship was riddled with illness. Seventy of the 90 Fijian laborers she'd taken on in Suva were on the upper deck, sweltering in the heat and under fevers, I'm far too sick to work. Seven of the 10 sailors running the ship were also too ill to work. Reports describe Captain Mawson once again instructing everyone to act as well as they possibly could to avoid any type of quarantine when they entered Nukalofa Harbor. By early December, reports began to appear in New Zealand publications regarding the course of the pandemic in the islands. A cable from December the 9th discusses the death of the Queen Dowager, several Europeans, and hundreds of Tongans. 
And the only doctor in Tongataba, the chief medical officer for the island, had left four days before the Tulune arrived to go to Fiji to restock his medicine. And when he got there, everyone was too ill to bring him back until well into 1919. So the only doctor in all of Tonga was up in Vavau and had no way of getting to the rest of the, of the state. Reports indicate the cases appeared two days after the departure of the Talune. The Tongan medical auxiliaries were some of the first to fall ill, and then volunteers took over distributing medicines. However, the volunteers themselves immediately fell ill. And in the absence of doctors, women who did not fall ill, particularly the nurse Ku Baker and her sisters, became the main providers for the Tongan population. And the very small presence of Europeans in Tonga in this particular instance was a drawback because, as I mentioned earlier, for the most part, Europeans were struck less severely by the disease. If you had a larger European population, they could assist. In Tonga, this simply wasn't the case. So with the advent of the pandemic, Nukalofa shut down. Reports describe more than 90% of Tongans adult ill. In Tonga, as in elsewhere in the Pacific, Native residents suffered a much greater morbidity and mortality than European neighbors. With Tongan's native government and small European trader population, that left very few people to volunteer. Only two police officers were well enough to report in all of Tonga Tabu. Starvation became rampant. The consul and other Europeans organized a soup kitchen, but could only serve those strong enough to access it. By November the 30th, there were three soup kitchens going in Nukalofa, and they started to get supplies out to the villages. To give you an idea of how sick the community was, the queen was left alone with her desperately ill husband. The queen was 18 at the time. She had a new baby, and the only servant that remained was a man who was described as a madman who would sneak out at night and steal food from neighboring farms. The queen and monarch of the territory was abandoned with her ill husband and her new baby. It takes a significant impact on a population to see an instance like this occur. Funeral rites became a huge problem as there were not sufficient Tongans well enough to handle the bodies and dig graves. Bodies lay in the sun for days. Sailors from ships in the harbor were drafted in to dig graves and were told to use mass graves. However, they very quickly asked if they could go back to single plot graves because they would find desperately ill Tongan adults crawling to the mass graves at night and attempting to disinter them with their hands in order to remove the bodies, as mass graves were a violation of multiple taboos in that circumstance. <coughs> Perhaps most important to the course of the pandemic was the behavior of the governing class in Tonga, the nobles. Now, the nobles were extremely resentful of the monarch because the British had come in and had asserted the monarch as a supreme authority because it was much easier to control the territory through one person than through a group of disparate nobles. So the nobles were deeply resentful of the monarchy as it had been established and of the British presence. When the flu hit, the nobles didn't assist. They went home and shut their gates. During the outbreak, many of the nobles offered no assistance at all. And such lack of local involvement exacerbated the course and severity of the influenza as the few volunteers that were present had no local knowledge, some, like I said, having come directly off the ships and couldn't be efficient in their care. The community response groups, which developed in other Polynesian states, never developed in Tonga. Tongans were pretty much left entirely to their own devices. Politically, this would have a direct effect on Tonga's future as the consul came away from this with a much viewed much changed view of the nobility and an even stronger support for the queen. Uh, instability from these changes, some say, has continued to the present day. So 
By January 2nd, cables from Suva described the Tongan outbreak as practically over with a mortality rate of 8%. So in the end, the experience of the voyage of the Talune and the 1918 pandemic demonstrated the social and political factors on the impact of social and political factors on infectious disease. These islands were infected almost concurrently with the same strain of virus in very similar conditions in populations with similar diet and histories of disease exposure. Yet the differences in mortality remain. Demography and geography were factors, but it was political factors. The nature of governments in place, their willingness to heed warnings, and their response to the pandemic once it arrived that had the greatest impact on eventual outcomes. Fiji's refusal to heed the warnings of approaching disease. Western Samoa's paralysis in the time of crisis and the absence of Tonga's, no, Tonga's nobles all stand in contrast to the simple decision to quarantine in American Samoa. Pandemics are a medical crisis, but pandemic response is a political and a social test. <laughs>